Welcome to another one of our Six Questions podcast. I'm Trent England with Save Our State. Very glad to welcome one of my colleagues to the program. Sean Parnell is the Senior Legislative Director for Save Our State. He has spent years traveling the entire country, meeting with state legislators, talking with, uh, with legislators and their staff and other folks uh, around state capitals about the importance to the Electoral College, the problems with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. So Sean has just an incredible wealth of knowledge about all of this and about how presidential elections actually work. We're going to get into that because there's a lot that people just miss about the, the details, the intricacies, the things that happen behind the scenes, you know, mostly between election day and the time a, a new president is actually inaugurated that actually make the national popular vote scheme even more dangerous than it might otherwise be. So Sean Parnell, thank you so much for joining me on Six Questions. Glad to be here. So uh, I wanna start off asking you about national popular vote talking points because sometimes they sound plausible and, and I wanna get, you know, I wanna get from you what they say, but I, I think we should probably start for folks just with a little refresher on what what is the National Popular Vote Compact? I mean, it's this campaign that's been around since 2006, uh, trying to get states to give away their electoral votes by choosing presidential electors based not on what people in their own state want, but based on the national popular vote total. So this is a scheme to try to hijack the Electoral College. They're out there, they're lobbying all around the country. Sean, you're out there um, trying to explain to legislators why this is so dangerous. But what are the NPB talking points that actually can sound plausible in, in the moment, at least, to, uh, to legislators? Sure. And a lot of their talking points, uh, you know, there's usually a grain of truth uh, and there's a lot of, of fluff and, and hyperbole and inaccuracy wrapped around uh, what it is that they're saying. Um, but generally, their talking points aim to make it sound like national popular vote. You know, this is a better form of democracy, that more people will be involved, more people will turn out. Uh, you know, we'll have a fair political system. And because state legislators are very busy individuals, uh, the Electoral College is, and you know, I'm not really happy about this, but it, this is the 40th most important issue on most state legislators' agenda. So, you know, they hear a couple of semi-plausible arguments and they're like, well, okay, you know, th this sounds good. I guess I can be okay with that. And then they're, you know, off to an ag hearing or a tax uh, meeting or, or something like that. Uh, so, you know, some of the things that, that I, uh, the talking points that I hear on a regular basis uh, are things like, well, you know, in a national popular vote, we'll have more people turn out uh, to, to vote. And, and that's, you know, a better form of democracy when you have more people voting. And, you know, as a general rule, I, I kind of like that general idea, more people turning out, more people involved in our democracy. That is a good thing. But when you start looking at the reality of uh, you know, what it is that they're basing their claims on, you find it really quickly falls apart. Their, their basic argument is that if you look at a couple of studies, uh, they, they claim to show that turnout is higher in so-called battleground stat states than they are than it is in states that are not battlegrounds. And you know, it, it's, it's plausible and there's a grain of truth to it, but when you start looking into it, which again, most state legislators don't have the time or the staff or the resources to really dive deep into this, 
what you find is that there's really not much connection between presidential campaigns and turnout. Uh, many states that have the highest turnout aren't in fact battleground states. Minnesota, which has not been a battleground state for some time, uh, has the highest turnout. And more importantly, I think when you look at uh, the off year, off cycle elections, so 2018, 2014, 2010, what you find is that the states that have the highest turnout in presidential years also typically have the highest turnout in non-presidential years. They just have political and civic cultures in, in which more people feel like it's important that they turn out to vote. It has very little to do with the presidential uh, election process, but of course, to a state legislator who again has many other issues that they're trying to deal with, you know, this kind of seems like an important thing. And, and you know, so maybe they're gonna be more interested in the compact. Uh, another one of my favorites that, um, you know, there's one study out there, I think that they've tortured the data enough uh, to show that uh, states that have, uh, or states that are battleground states get more disaster declarations from FEMA. Um, and, and this is one of their big talking points. Oh, if only we, you know, had national popular vote and not the electoral college, then we, you know, would not have this unfairness in which states get disaster declarations. Uh, again, sounds kind of plausible. We're all familiar with the way politics can sometimes work. It's not always pretty. Uh, but when you, if you actually just go and take the time to count all of the disaster declarations by state over the last 20 years, which is what I did over several hours, it turns out that most of the states that uh, lead in the number of disaster declarations actually aren't battleground states. The top state by far was Oklahoma. Uh, New York, California uh, were, I think, the, the number two and the number three states. Of the top 11 or 12 states in terms of the number of disaster declarations, only one of them uh, was a battleground state, and that was Florida, which kind of makes sense if you think about it as the only state in the union that is subject to both Atlantic and Gulf hurricanes. Uh, so, but it, it takes time to take a look at these talking points that their lobbyists are offering and really understand that there's not much, if anything, to them. And that's time that state legislators don't really have. And so they kind of, you know, very often just go with these plausible sounding talking points. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both, both of those examples that you gave, I think are just, you know, classic examples where uh, you use the phrase torturing the data. You know, you can, you can torture data to show all kinds of, of things, but you, you go and you actually just look at it as you've done, Sean, and you say, wait a second, th this is not, I mean, it just, just sort of the, a, a glance at what, what is actually going on shows you that it's not, it's not what the national popular vote folks uh, claim it is. Uh, the, the second question, you know, some of these national popular vote lobbyists are actually former Republican officials who now are, you know, paid uh, flax for the national popular vote interstate compact. And it seemed like for a while they were getting some traction with Republican state legislators, but that seems to be going away. Sean, I'm curious what you think is, is happening there. Yeah, I think that they were uh, doing a, a really good job uh, getting in and talking with state legislators in states that, frankly, we were kind of not really paying that much attention to because we thought, oh, you know, the Republicans in this state, they'll understand that national popular vote is a bad idea, so we don't need to go 
and, and you know, educate them on this. And, and that was a real mistake on our part. Uh, and what their lobbyists were able to do is put together this really slick pitch that basically makes the argument that national popular vote would be good for Republicans, that the Republican candidate for president would be more likely to win under national popular vote, uh, that re down ballot Republican office holders running for Congress and state legislature, places like California and New York and Illinois, uh, that they would benefit as well uh, from the increased Republican turnout that they, that they promise. Um, and, and so for a while, you know, they were having some success with that. Uh, usually what would happen would be a, you know, some Republicans would sign on to it and then uh, grassroots Republican activists or, or even just, you know, regular voters would get wind that their Republican state legislator was trying to give away their electoral votes. And a lot of times that would be enough for, for the Republican to, to back off. But uh, we've really had to step up our outreach and education and make sure that Republicans understand, uh, one, the, the pitch that this is supposed to be good for Republicans has got a lot of holes in it as well. It's, it's a lot of those uh, things that the, it sounds plausible on its face, but then when you start looking under the numbers, it very quickly falls apart. Um, and, and so John, I think that, oh, yeah. I, do, do you think it's, I mean, what I've noticed about some of that pitch, it seems to rely on things that the Democrats used to say about why the, you know, why Democrats were ultimately going to become completely dominant in elections because of demographics. And I mean, is that, is that, is that right? I mean, it, it seems like these claims, you know, it's like you have Republican lobbyists using old Democrat talking points to claim that Republicans are somehow doomed unless they change the rules. I mean, it, I don't know. Is that an oversimplification? No, I think that's a, a big part of their pitch. Uh, they, along with a number of Democrats, sort of took to heart the idea that uh, America was, you know, inexorably trending to the left. And, and as that happened, um, you know, the, the Democrats would just have such a massive advantage in the Electoral College that no Republican could ever hope to compete. And I think that you're right, that NPV's Republican lobbyists really bought into this and, you know, really made that a part of their pitch. And I think that we're seeing that that whole theory is really just crumbling and falling apart. The, the Democratic pollster who sort of came up, I think, initially with or, or is popularly thought of having uh, come up with this idea, the Emerging Democratic Majority, I think was the book written by Roy Teixeira. I'm not sure about the pronunci pronunciation there, um, but he's actually backed off of that now. He said, you know, I didn't really say what people thought I said, and even what I did actually say, I kind of think I, I was wrong and overstated the case. Now, uh, we have a very competitive two-party system. The Republicans are evolving and adapting in ways that make them competitive, and, and the Democrats are evolving and adapting in ways that make them competitive in some ways and less competitive in other ways. I mean, as you know well, uh, our political system is a system of constant adaptation. Uh, states that were safe, you know, three cycles ago are now very competitive, and states that were competitive a while ago, uh, you know, no longer are. It, 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 it's a constant dynamic, and I think that what some Democrats in the, you know, early part of, of this century, and NPV's lobbyists today, certainly, the Republican ones, have really bought into the idea that our politics are frozen, that the coalitions that we have today or the coalitions that existed 
10 years ago, you know, that's permanent. That's just the way things are. And, and you know, this is part of their sales pitch to Republicans. Uh, you know, we need this national popular vote because we're never going to be able to win under the, the existing system. And I think that most people have sort of realized that that's just not the case. And one of the things I know we've seen is that, you know, the national popular vote has claimed to be bipartisan. The, the reality is there's almost no Republicans willing to support it anymore who aren't, you know, or aren't paid members of the national popular vote lobbying team. On the other hand, you've got a lot of Democrats who are opposed to national popular vote. Talk about what you see from their, you know, what, what's their perspective because uh, obviously a lot of Democrat grassroots think that, you know, if you could just get rid of the Electoral College, then everything would be much better. Uh, but why do you find Democrat state legislators opposing NPV? Yeah, and, and that is one of the big misconceptions about this, um, that Democrats are all for or almost all for the national popular vote. And, you know, what I've been hearing and talking to Democrats for over a decade on this issue and, you know, there's no doubt that this does have a little bit more appeal to Democrats. I think that some of that is partisanship. You know, they saw Bush elected and they think, oh, if we just didn't have the Electoral College, then Gore would have won. And same dynamic with uh, with Trump and, and Clinton. Um, but that is not uh, at all a, a unanimous or, or, or even a uh, predominant uh, belief. I talk with Democrats all the time who, you know, some of them, uh, you know, start talking about the Federalist Papers and, you know, the founding framers got it right and, and we're not any smarter than they were. And, and some of them, you know, frankly, they're, they're not really fans of the Electoral College, but they just look at the compact and they, they, you know, they're state legislators, they've been through elections, they know how these things work uh, and, and they just see all of the potential problems. Uh, you know, I had one Democratic state legislator a, a couple of days ago I was talking with, and she said, you know, I, I'd get rid of the Electoral College if I could, but this national popular vote thing is just ridiculous. And, and we talked about, you know, some of the, the problems with it just from, from a technical uh, nature. And I run into a lot of Democrats who uh, are, you know, maybe kind of ambivalent or even leaning against the Electoral College, but they just look at the compact and they say, this thing will be a disaster. And I do also talk to Democrats who say, you know, the founding fathers got it right. And this ensures that my state is represented in the presidential election process. And I'm not willing to disenfranchise the voters of my state so that we can let other uh, states dictate who gets our electoral votes. So what you said just a moment ago was a great segue to question number four here with Sean Parnell on our Six, Six Questions uh, podcast at Save Our States. Sean, you mentioned the details of presidential elections, the process, and the fact that some state legislators who understand elections reject the national popular vote interstate compact for that reason. What happens in a presidential election after election day? What is this process Let's let's run through that, and then maybe I'll kind of insert a question four point five, which is why you know what would national popular vote try to do to this process, and why is that a problem? But let's just walk through this real quickly. I mean, you know, people people all go to the polls, they cast ballots. Then what happens? Yeah, so obviously the the ballots are counted. There's uh, processes in every state for you know counting the ballots uh, in many states auditing 
the process to make sure that, you know, they haven't left out a precinct or miscounted anything. Um, and then those results are transmitted to the Secretary of State, usually in, in most states or whoever the top election official is. And, and that person is, is responsible then for also, uh, it might not be an official audit, but they go through the returns, they make sure you know, they've got every county, or ideally they make sure they have every county and that you know, the numbers all line up and, and that things look good. And then they will certify the winning slate of electors who won, you know, received the most votes in that state. Uh, and then they, you know, send just like they do with state legislators and the governor and, and other elected officials, they send a notification saying, you know, congratulations, you've been elected to this office, office of presidential elector, uh, and your duty is to show up at the state capitol on, you know, this particular day and come and cast your vote. Uh, and then the electors, of course, show up, they cast their vote, there's some paperwork to be filled out. And uh, that paperwork is then sent to uh, several places, actually, but the, the you know, most important, I guess, would be the president of the US Senate, uh, who holds on to that. And then that is what is open on January 6th, uh, and is counted in the presence of the uh, Joint Session of Congress. So as I said, kind of a sneaky question 4.5 on our Six Questions podcast. How does that work with national popular vote? I mean, they claim that everything just stays the same. It's no big deal. Um, where, where does this process uh, get different if the NPV compact took effect? Yeah, the, the biggest uh, difference is that, you know, right now the chief election official looks at the votes in their own state and declares, you know, the winning slate to be whichever slate received the most votes in the states in the, you know, within their own jurisdiction. Under national popular vote, that official is supposed to obtain uh, and, and calculate the vote totals for every other state as well. And that's where the real problems start to arise. Um, the, the compact is kind of vague in some ways and, and very specific in other ways, if you kind of understand what it is that they're talking about. Um, but basically the, uh, the secretary of state or whoever the chief election official is for each state is supposed to either use the certificate of ascertainment that every state is supposed to produce, or uh, you know the, a final certified statewide tally. Uh, the problems with that uh, would be that those documents were never intended to be aggregated. Uh, you, you know, for example, you have states that use ranked choice voting, and that creates its own set of problems because uh, you've got two different. Uh, vote totals for each candidate under ranked choice voting. You also have the fact that the certificates of ascertainment that uh, some states provide aren't necessarily accurate. The biggest uh, you know, uh, miss on this would have been New York State in 2012, where uh, they left off about 415,000 votes because they simply were not done uh, counting all of the votes yet. And they've been consistently off for the last four presidential elections by uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of votes. So, uh, you know, there are other problems as well, all of which ultimately wind up giving the chief election official in an NPV state a pretty broad degree of latitude to, you know, essentially decide the election the way they want to uh, once they get to start bringing in 
vote totals from other states and deciding which they'll accept and which they might reject and and which they might uh, have to estimate. Uh, you know, last year I think it was uh, a national popular vote lobbyist in uh, South Dakota was talking about how the election official gets to estimate vote totals if for some reason the certificate of ascertainment isn't available or doesn't have those numbers. And, and that's a pretty scary uh, scenario, I think. That's, that's pretty bizarre, the idea that an election official would estimate numbers in order to determine a winner. I, I want to drill into one of the things that you mentioned there is this question number five, about ranked choice voting and national popular vote, because we've seen uh, Maine and now Alaska uh, planning to use ranked choice voting to choose their presidential electors in 2024. There, there could be other states. It's you know this this change to how elections work is proposed in a number of places around the country, uh, but this is not compatible with national popular vote. To me, this seems really simple, but. I know that we've ran into people who find it very confusing. So, Sean, explain why ranked choice voting and national popular vote are just entirely incompatible. Sure. And I'll, I'll start by explaining ranked choice voting very briefly. Uh, basically, right now, when you and I walk into the voting booth, we put a check mark or fill in an oval next to one candidate for one office, and, and that's it. Under ranked choice voting, if you have multiple candidates, you you get to rank them. You get to say, well, my, this is my first choice vote, but if they're eliminated because they perform poorly in the first round of the, the vote counting, then this is my second choice vote. So I might uh, you know, walk into the voting booth and, and rank the Libertarian as my top candidate, and then I might rank the Constitution Party candidate as my second, and then rank the Republican as my third uh, place. And as those lower, you know, when they count all of the votes, uh, the candidate who receives the least first place votes, they get knocked out. And in this case, let's say it was the Libertarian. Uh, my vote for the, my second place vote for the Conservative Party candidate or Constitution Party candidate then gets counted for that candidate. And this process goes on until somebody eventually has a majority uh, of at least all of the candidates or, uh, of all of the votes that still remain at that point. So ranked choice voting produces at least two different vote counts for the candidates. It produces the first place, everybody's first place votes. It's gonna have the Libertarian and the Green and the Constitution and all of these third party candidates as well as the Democrat and the Republican. But then after the, the ranking process is complete, there's a final vote tally that can be tens or even hundreds of thousands of votes different for the final two candidates. Under national popular vote, there's really no guidance. There's really nothing that would require that election official in a state who's trying to determine what the vote counts are from, let's say, Maine. Uh, there's nothing that says you have to use the first place rankings or you have to use the last, uh, you know, the, the, the final uh, vote tally that's only come down to the last two candidates. So uh, it gives them the opportunity to potentially and there's, there's really no legal reason why someone would have to choose one over the other. It's completely arbitrary. It gives them the opportunity to decide which vote totals they want to use, even when that decision can change the outcome of the election. 
The other problem with ranked choice voting is what happens when you have a third party candidate or an independent candidate who finishes ahead of either the Democrat or the Republican. In that scenario, what happens is that, let's say it's the Democrat who finishes in third place, uh, they potentially wind up having zero votes recorded uh, coming out of that state for them because of course the third party candidate, their votes get eliminated, get erased, and they then get reallocated to either the Republican or the independent candidate, depending on how people uh, you know, cast their ranked choice ballot. That's far from theoretical, right? I mean, in 1992, in our lifetime, uh, Bill Clinton came in in third place in Utah, and George H.W. Bush came in in third place in Maine. So in, I mean, in that correct. election, had those states been using ranked choice voting, Bill Clinton would have had a couple hundred thousand votes just deleted from his national total. Uh, and, uh, and George H.W. Bush would have had over 100,000 votes just deleted from his national total in that election. And, and I mean, that, that is not mathematically defensible. It's not democratic. It's essentially just arbitrary. Yeah, it's, it's completely arbitrary. And if you think about some of the close elections we've had, and, and by my count, four of the last 16 elections have been close elections. Uh, when you start shifting, you know, a couple hundred thousand votes here and there, uh, you are potentially changing the outcome, or at least you are giving the chief election officials in national popular vote states the essentially unchecked power to decide, well, I'm going to take this set of votes uh, out of, you know, Utah, uh, because it, you know, it completely zeroes out the Democrats' uh, votes there, because the, the Libertarian Party candidate came in in second place and they're using ranked choice voting. Uh, it, it really does give tremendous power uh, in the case of a close national election, which is frankly, when you start counting things like the number of undervotes and overvotes that litigation could potentially you know, disqualify or rule back in. Uh, and the same thing with absentee ballots and provisional ballots, really anything under a couple million vote margin is going to be considered a close election in terms of the arbitrary decisions of these state officials being able to decide uh, for themselves who it is that won the presidential election. Yes, yeah, scary prospect. Sean Parnell, Senior Legislative Director for Save Our States. Our last question, of course, is always the same. Who is your favorite founding father and why? So there's a part of me that wants to say James Wilson, uh, because he is, of course, the first delegate to the Constitutional Convention who proposed using electors to elect the president. Um, but I, I do have to stick with uh, probably a very popular choice, George Washington, largely because uh, he was literally offered, you know, more or less the kingship of, of the, the new country in, in many ways, uh, a couple of times, both during his military career and, and, and after. And every time he declined, he, he understood what he was fighting for, and he understood that the principles of democracy were very important, and that uh, you know, putting his ambition ahead of the nation's uh, was just something that he, he was not willing to entertain. And, and so for that, he's my favorite, uh, with, with James Wilson as maybe my fallback choice. Very nice. Sean, thank you so much for joining me on Six Questions. Thank you.
And thanks to all of our viewers and listeners out there. Thanks for being a part of Save Our States on Facebook or wherever you have found our uh, podcast here. We're glad to that you're a part of what we do, what Sean does, what I do, and the rest of the team here at Save Our States. We can't do it without you uh, taking the materials that we produce, sharing them with other people, educating people about why our nation of states, why our electoral college process is so instrumental to preserving the liberty, the prosperity that we all hold so dear. So thank you so much. And we'll be back with another Six Questions podcast.